Few people gave Katie Porter a chance to win when she ran for a congressional seat in 2018. The UC Irvine School of Law professor was a first-time candidate going up against a GOP incumbent as a Democrat in Orange County, California, a place that Ronald Reagan once described as, quote, where all the good Republicans go to die. And then the impossible happened. Katie Porter won. Today, she's a rising star in Congress. Clips of her lecturing oligarchs and bureaucrats on behalf of working people go viral. Katie's stands are legion and want Congresswoman Porter to have a political future beyond representing Orange County. Will she? I'm Gustavo Arellano. You're listening to The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Today is June 7th, 2021. Mexico awaits the results of key midterm elections. California Attorney General Rob Bonta vows to appeal a federal judge's decision to overturn the state's ban on assault weapons. And the Pentagon says no rainbow flags allowed on bases during June, which happens to be Pride Month. So bases named after Confederate generals hot, but LGBTQ troops not? Got it. Today, Congresswoman Porter joins us for the full show to talk about her career, her causes, and her future. And to answer this important question, just where does she get all those whiteboards? And then I have my AirPods in, and I'm about to quit shuffling things all over the place. Alrighty, I'm officially ready. Congresswoman Porter represents California's 45th Congressional District. It comprises cities that embody how Americans still think about Orange County. You know, wealthy suburbs, middle-class residents, the type of place where people will call the police if you park a car from the 1970s in front of their house. No, seriously, it happened to me more than once. So to have a progressive elected here is not just historic, it's almost unfathomable to OC lifers like myself. And yet not only did Porter easily win her first re-election in 2020, she's now seemingly unstoppable. Congresswoman Porter, welcome to The Times. Thank you so much for having me. So the trajectory of your life is just remarkable. A small town kid from Iowa becomes a student of Elizabeth Warren at Harvard Law School. Single mother of three turns into a law professor. And now you're a congresswoman in Orange County. Is this how you envisioned your life? not how I envisioned my life, but I do think it's how the framers envisioned representative democracy. And so I think, you know, I feel really lucky to be in Congress in this moment in 2021, where I have colleagues who come from so many different backgrounds. I have colleagues who are, you know, Lauren Underwood, Black woman who's a nurse from Illinois, Cory Bush, also a nurse, Anna Presley, raised by a single mother, Jonah Goose, my chairman of the National Parks Committee. So to be in Congress in a moment in which we are hearing really the voices of the people start to push back against the entrenched, both institutional, structural, older, whiter, wealthier men voices that have dominated our Congress for most of its history, um, and also to push back against the powerful special interests, including the corporate lobbyists. It's not that I thought my life would turn out this way, but I think the fact that there are people like me who are now able, with a little hard work and a lot, I should say a lot of hard work and a little bit of hustle, are able to serve in the Congress, I think it's a good thing for our country as a whole. Yeah, the the ideals that we've always been taught about in the Constitution, that anyone can do it, finally, it seems, anyone can do it. 
And, you know, we're not there yet, but we are moving in that direction. So one of the most interesting things when I got to Congress in 2018, you know, the Democrats had won a lot of seats. Big blue wave, that was the big story. And then the second story, the sort of second level DC reporter story was, I want to do a story about how there's so many women. And I kept thinking to myself, so many women is what shows up at the Nordstrom Rack on the Black Friday. Like, Congress is not <laughs> so many women. It's been so structurally difficult for people from diverse backgrounds to run for Congress, to get elected, to overcome everything from the financial barriers to running for Congress and serving in Congress to the electoral difficulties of getting elected as a person of color or a person with a non-traditional career background. So I think we're heading in the right direction, and I think there are some bright things on the horizon. So when you came to Orange County to take a job at UCI School of Law in 2011, the 45th congressional district that you now represent was still a GOP stronghold. What changed since that time that convinced you to run in 2018? So I think that it was a combination of my understanding about the different ways that people can make a difference in their communities and in their state, combined with the fact that Orange County has and continues to be changing. Um, so, you know, when I moved here, I had I grew up in Iowa. I had lived in Massachusetts and Arkansas and Las Vegas and Oregon and lots of places. But when I got here, I very quickly felt that this was going to be home. Um, I had two mm. little kids when I arrived. My daughter was born here. She likes to um, point out to the rest of us that she is actually a Californian. Um, and the rest of us are just pretending. Um, but uh, <laughs> so I got here, you know, this, you know, it was a new law school. There was a sense of energy and growth about Orange County, about the direction it was headed, that the work here isn't done, that we're still creating jobs and creating communities. And that was really important. And when I got here, I took on this role for the state of California under then Attorney General Kamala Harris, being the monitor for the national mortgage settlement. The five largest banks had agreed to change their practices. So within a few months of getting here, I was in this wonderful position of getting to know advocates across the state, of getting to go into parts of California that to this day, a lot of Californians haven't been to. I mean, every kind of type of California community and every type and kind of Californian was facing a lot of pressure with regard to home prices and home foreclosures in that time. So I feel like that gave me this grounding as a Californian. And so I did never think, Gustavo, growing up as a farm kid in Iowa, that I would identify as a Californian. That continues to surprise me, but also fill me with joy because I love this place so much. You and hundreds of thousands of other Iowans over the past century or so. It's like we are the golden land for Iowa, even though Iowa itself, is, of course, is a beautiful state. But it wasn't just you who won in 2018 in Orange County. The entire congressional delegation turned Democrat for the first time ever. Those of us lifers in Orange County, we never imagined in a million years this would happen. And it made national news. That's how monumental the wins were here. So why is it important for the rest of the U.S. to know that the politics have changed in Orange County from that deep red to an increasingly blue purple? Well, I think the, the big lesson for the country and for people around the country is to understand that attitudes and values and the political parties themselves do change over time. And there was such an attitude when I got to Orange County that this like, this is Republican territory, it's hopeless. And there are a lot of Republicans in Orange County today. I represent a lot of them and I enjoy that experience. It makes my job more interesting and more rewarding. But this sense that, you know, some people still have that 
There's no way that someone like me could have gotten elected. There's no way Democrats could have won. There is a way. Just look at the math of what's going on. I represent now about equal numbers of Republicans and Democrats with a big chunk of people who are no party preference. Um, but those numbers were changing and yet Republicans were winning here. The Republican that I beat in 2016, she had won by 17 points. That is a lot. Mimi Walters. Mimi Walters. So when I won, ultimately, by four points, that was a 22-point swing in a congressional district in two years. You don't see that very often, but it's also true that people don't try to flip congressional districts where the Republican has won by double digits, big double digits, very often. So I think there's a lesson here about not assuming where people are and what they value, but getting out there and talking to them. But one of the things I found when I got out there was that a lot of our no party preference voters were not necessarily people who were anti-Trump and had left the Republican Party or they were really moderate. A lot of them were people who were fairly progressive, at least on some issues, but were really frustrated with Washington, really frustrated with the Democratic Party, really concerned about corruption in Washington. And so they actually shared, for instance, my concern about protecting our environment and the importance of that. They shared my concerns about gun violence prevention. But they just didn't feel like Democrats were engaged in our community, were speaking to them. We didn't have a lot of local government, local Democratic officials that they could relate to and see making change. And so I think this is a very unusual situation in Orange County where instead of bubbling up, we actually kind of did this top down. Some congressional candidates came in and won. And now what we're seeing is growing competitiveness at the local level in our city councils, our county board of supervisors, and some of those races. And there's still majority Republican, but there's contested races now on a regular basis in Orange County. And I think that's a good thing for people of both political parties, and certainly a good thing for those no party preference voters. We'll have more after this break. We're back and we're speaking with Congresswoman Katie Porter from Orange County. We live in these really hyperpartisan times, and yet you have no problem working with Republicans across the aisle. In fact, this year you actually teamed up with another OC Congresswoman, Michelle Steele, a Republican, and she's the opposite of you. Former supervisor, hard right, didn't even really believe in coronavirus here locally. But the two of you teamed up to sponsor a resolution that condemned hate crimes against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. But then recently during a meeting here in Orange County with Republicans, she apologized for working with you and then later on tried to take it back saying, oh, yeah, it was a joke. How did that make you feel? So I think it was disheartening for me as a Californian, as an American, um, to see that that for her, this is some kind of, you know, political joke that she worked with me. And I, I think it did make me question her sincerity about the, the substantive issue, um, which is AAPI hate, which is a very, very important issue, both here locally in Orange County, but also around the country. So, you know, I hope to find and I'm going to continue to look for good Republican partners. Um, but, you, you know, I want them to be sincere. And so I have Republicans that I worked with on some bills last Congress. I had a bill with Dan Crenshaw, very conservative Republican from Texas, very active in Republican politics, lobbying, you know, for, uh, campaigning for other Republican candidates. But Dan and I came together to work on a bill to protect Americans from scam packs, from solicitations to give to political action committees often using veterans or firefighters or other kinds of sympathetic causes that really are just ripping people off. 
So despite your experience with uh, Congresswoman Steele, who's Korean-American, by the way, you feel that bipartisanship is not just still possible, but also necessary. Yeah, look, the way I think about this is when I'm working on a bill, um, I'll give you a good example. I have a bill that's called the Ending Taxpayer Welfare for Oil and Gas Companies. And (laughs) what this would do is move the royalty rates that oil and gas companies pay to extract oil and gas from our collective public lands, it would adjust it upward because it hasn't changed in 100 years, even though the risks of oil drilling have gone down and states have moved up their royalty rates, Congress has not. So here is a great way to raise revenue for our country, to remove subsidies for an industry that does not need them, right? I have Republican co-sponsor in this, uh, on the Rep- Senate bill. It's Senator Grassley and Jackie Rosen. I'm in the House. I will take anybody who wants to work on that bill to be my co-sponsor because that's the issue that we're fighting for together. But at the same time, I can't find a Republican right now in the House because it's become so partisan. There seems to be a real sense in the House that Republicans should just hold out and they'll win the majority back in 2022. So therefore, they will not work on any issues in the meantime. And that's really discouraging, but I'm not gonna let that stop me. So for me, bipartisanship is more about, is this a good idea? And the goal of bipartisanship is to bring different perspectives together to create better ideas. Congresswoman, you're probably most famous in the mainstream for your whiteboard. This big whiteboard with a marker that you bust out during congressional hearings, and then you just school people. Everyone from the CEO, Wells Fargo, Ben Carson, so many people. Why do you think those clips go viral all the time? I think there's there's two elements of it. One is that people are really fed up with feeling like their politicians, their elected officials are intentionally obfuscating, are giving them a non-answer of mumbo-jumbo, are trying to make it unclear what they believe or what they're trying to do. So I think it really benefits me that I'm a straight shooter, and that's how I come into these hearings. Here's some tape of that right now. Um, As you know, this is our second day of hearings with the CEOs of big pharma companies, and we've heard so much important information. I know what questions I think the American people want from Big Pharma. Mr. Bradway, what was Amgen's total revenue in 2017? Oh, gosh, uh, approximately $22 billion. Okay, so it was $23.7 billion. Um, how about 2018? Uh, I don't have that to hand, but again, it would be 24 That's okay, I have it handy. $22.8 billion. Yep. They want to know why these drugs are going up in price two, three, four times, but the drugs aren't getting any better. How much did Amgen spend on compensation for the top five executives? That's the number you've written on the board. Thank you. Could you say that number, please, for the committee? Yes, 100. You've, I'll assume that your number is correct. It's 124 million dollars. Okay, wonderful. Um, and then my final question is: Do so I come in with a clear sense of what I think the American people want to ask, and a an, commitment to trying to get the answer for them? And then I think the second thing about the whiteboards is. People are not all political junkies. They're not going to dive into the intricacies of how big pharma uses research and development as a front for the fact that they're doing giveaways to corporate shareholders. So my job is to make the issues accessible to people and to invite them then into the conversation so they can engage more.
So when I asked, for instance, CEO Jamie Dimon, I said, here's someone, you know, here's a hypothetical person. Um, Mr. Dimon, you're an expert on financial statements and you run a $2.6 trillion bank. I know you're good at numbers. You know, here's you your job posting, $16 an hour in Irvine. You're at J.P. Morgan Chase, it pays $16.50 an hour. Here's the cost of living in Irvine. You do the math on this and you do the $16.50 out at 40 hours a week for 52 weeks a year. It comes out to an income of $35,070. Now this bank teller, her name is Patricia. She has one child who's six years old. She, she can't make ends meet as a, as a mom with one, one elementary school kid. What should she do? I think what a lot of people heard is, yeah, that's what I'm asking myself every day. I can't make ends meet and I'm working full time and I like living in Orange County. This is my home. I, uh, what should I do? I don't know that all your numbers are accurate. That number is a start is a generally a starter job. She is a starting employee. She has a six year old child. Okay, and, this is her and, first job. And you can get those jobs at a high school, and she may have my job one day. So she, she may, but Mr. Diamond, she doesn't have the ability right now to spend your thirty one million dollars. Yeah, totally sympathetic. She's short five sixty seven. What would you suggest she do? I, I don't know. I'd have to think about that. Would the whiteboard really is just a tool to make it easier for people to see what I'm asking about and to make it harder for the witness to filibuster and wander off because they are coached to the tune of $1,000 an hour by very expensive lobbyists and lawyers to learn how to not answer a question. And my favorite example of this was when we had Mark Zuckerberg come in before Congress. I have never heard someone talk so slowly. He was just trying to run out the five minute clock, right? So you really do have to go in with how are you gonna get answers in a way that you can fit it into the time you have, but also the answers aren't for me. The answers are for all of us. And I'm sure people get intimidated. They're like, we're ready. We've been coached by people. We pay $1,000 an hour to do all this bureaucrat ease. And here's this woman with a whiteboard. It's like bringing a, nowadays a slingshot into a gun battle. And you're and they're like, uh, 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 uh. And then they stumble. And of course, you know your stuff. So then you just go directly at them. When I first started asking questions, they clearly didn't see it coming. They know that I'm going to ask real questions. And so the tactic has shifted. And now it's sort of right from the start to try to question my knowledge, my ability to ask questions. But at the same time, I think it's the American public's tolerance for their BS is going down because they have seen that I am asking fair questions in a fair way. Coming up, we asked Congresswoman Porter about her experience on January 6th when thousands of protesters invaded the U.S. Capitol. Congresswoman, you were there at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Describe that day. It was definitely a day that felt important right from the beginning of the morning. But nobody, I don't think, had a full understanding even though we, many of us felt worried about the protests, we, we knew there were going to be people protesting. Um, I don't think anybody saw exactly how it was going to play out. And I think for me, one of the, the really enduring takeaways, both at, a, both at an intellectual but also at a deeply emotional level, was we've all heard elected officials say, democracy is fragile. You know, if we don't take care of democracy, it won't take care of itself. All of these phrases. But really on January 6th, we saw that that is true. 
that democracy is fragile, that it can be, um, you know, under attack, that it can be torn down. Um, And so I think that was both scary, but also motivating reminder of the importance of continuing to do this work. And part of that, the Democrats feel is having hearings on what happened on January 6th. Meanwhile, Republicans say, nope, that's just going to open up old wounds. Let's all move on. Why do you think the GOP is so resistant to examining that day? Well, I think there's there's two branches, as we clearly see right now, kind of two big wings of the of the GOP in Congress. One of them is, you know, Donald Trump was terrible. This was the, you know, we have to rebuild ourselves as a fresh party. And that party is eager to move on, to put space between themselves and what happened on January 6th. So they don't want to have hearings. The other branch of the Republican Party actually wants to reelect Donald Trump or someone very much like him. So they don't want to remind people about what happened on January 6th. So I think this is a really important example of not thinking about this is about what Democrats want or about what Republicans want, but asking ourselves, what do Americans need? And we do need to understand how we can keep our capital and the people who work in it safe while they do the work of democracy. Can we get that information through something other than an independent commission? Maybe I haven't been party to enough of what we've learned so far in investigations to have an answer to that. And I do think they need this commission to feel like we have an understanding of what happened and how to prevent it. So the big question that your fans have, are you going to run for U.S. Senate in 2022? You know, I am. Or 2024 or ever. (laughs) So I'm running for re-election for the House in 2022. I think it'll be a very interesting environment in Orange County because we did lose some seats in 2020. And I think my, you know, my number one goal politically for the next two years and, you know, virtually anybody else would say get re-elected. Well, fooey on them. My number one goal for the next two years is can we get Americans to have more confidence that Congress is working for them than they have right now? And final question, what company makes the best whiteboards? So I'm not super picky about my whiteboards, um, but I am really fond (laughs) of Expo markers. And I will also say I do have a favorite whiteboard. um, And it's my favorite one is the size of a piece of paper. Um, It's exactly the same size as a legal pad. And what I like about it is I can just carry it. I have a very large purse because I'm a mom of three. And so I just carry this whiteboard right in my purse. I have it with me every day. So if I ever need to use it in a hearing or a briefing or even, you know, to illustrate something for staff, I can just whip it right out. (laughs) Thank you so much for this interview, Congresswoman Porter. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for this episode of The Times. Tomorrow, we'll be going to the library. Not library, library. Seriously, it's not an old, boring, quiet place. Libraries have produced America's leading authors, poets, and rising female punk groups. Our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Stephen A. Cuevas, and Denise Guerra. Our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our editor is Julia Turner, and our theme music is by Andrew Eaton. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news and this month. Gracias.